Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello there, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. And that's it. My guest on this episode of My Time Capsule is the fitness expert, author, and presenter, Lizzie Webb, known to a whole generation as Mad Lizzie, a title she gained through her daily fitness section on the British morning television channel TVAM and its flagship show, Good Morning Britain. The Mad nickname reflected her endless energy and enthusiasm at a time when many people were just dragging themselves out of bed, me particularly. But she introduced daily exercise to millions, and her exercise and dance videos rivaled the film star Jane Fonda's output. Lizzie is responsible for the children's character, Joggy Bear. In fact, both Lizzie and Joggy starred in their own TV shows on Channel 4. But around this public face, Lizzie has led an extraordinarily varied life, much of it teaching dance and drama, often to young people. And she's finally written her autobiography, appropriately entitled Mad About the Boys, Fame, Fitness and Teaching London's Toughest Kids. So now seems the perfect time to ask her what, from her life, she'd choose to have in a time capsule. So here is the very certainly not mad Lizzie Webb. You're looking fantastic, and uh, I'm thinking of the thousands of people who are listening to this who are able to listen to it because they're still alive because they followed you every morning and did exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure some of them have passed away by now because it's 40 years since I finished doing my 10 years on TVAM, and a lot has happened since, of course, but I'm sure some of them have passed away, but equally it's lovely to meet people in the street who say, hi, Mad Lizzie. That's a lovely thing, isn't it? You think you might get annoyed with it, but it's not. It's an absolute term of affection. It is. It is. And it gives me licence to be slightly mad, of course. (laughs) Perfect. That's what we all want in life, I think. (laughs) People willing to accept that you're going to do something offhand. I like that. Yes. So we're going to talk, Lizzie, about five things from any time in your life that you wish you had in a time capsule. So um, I'd be fascinated to see what you've chosen, because I mean, let's face it, you and I, we have plenty of time to pick from. (laughs) We do. That's a very polite way of putting it. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I feel the same. I feel that way. I feel as if if I had to pick from my entire life, you'd have to miss some certain things, of course. Yes. um, And also there are some things you'd rather not bring back up. And so you're dealing, when you're dealing with your life, as you know, when you're writing a memoir, you have to accept that as you're doing it. It'll bring up and stir up all sorts of emotions. Yes. 
And uh, the great thing, I think, about a memoir is it obviously people expect you to list all these extraordinary people you will have undoubtedly met throughout it. But it's more to do with the simple relationships, isn't it, than those fleeting meeting people in the studio? Yes, and and you realise too that it's all about people. Life is about people. And a collective Mm. memory of experiences and the great times and the bad times you've had. But it's about people. Yes, lovely. Okay, right. Well, let's um, examine it then. Let's go through it piece by piece and see what comes up. We're going to look at five things. So let's look at the first thing and see what that reveals for us. The first thing will be my violin. Ah. I had the great fortune to play the violin. I have three sisters and three of us were close in age. My younger sister came a little bit later, but my second sister played the piano beautifully and I played the violin. My father also played the violin, so there was an encouragement there to do that. But What I think it did was give me a huge appreciation of music, which has lived with me throughout my entire life since. Mm. So I learned it at a very early age. Um, I was good enough to actually get a scholarship, a junior scholarship to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. My sister also got the scholarship at the same time on the piano. So we would have trios together with my father on the violin uh, sometimes and my sister and myself playing together. So that was a a lovely family thing that we did. Um, And I think when it came to choreographing at the school I was at and then later on in life with my own dance classes at the Dance Centre in Covent Garden and Pineapple Mm -hmm. and then 10 years on television of TVAM, that music background absolutely was the backbone, actually, of what I did with exercise and dance. Mm. So the violin is hugely important to me and brings back very, very happy memories. Yes. So that uh, understanding of music and that appreciation of rhythm and, and beats and the tempo and all those sort of things, that led to your love of dance. What made you go into dance then? Um, My mother had always wanted to dance. Mm. Her mother said, that's not nice, you don't do that. (laughs) So she gave all her four daughters the opportunity to have ballet lessons. She was never a typical ballet mum. Do you know the sort of mum that pushes and wants to be there and knitting or (laughs) doing things and making all the leg warmers and all that? She was never like that. She gave us that opportunity. And we went to a very, very good retired ballerina in Golders Green. We lived in High Barnet. Um, And so to have that opportunity and to appreciate that opportunity, particularly when I failed my 11 plus, and that had a really detrimental effect on me, I failed. So she made sure that she worked her socks off so that I could go to a private school, a bit like a stage school, but it was a ballet school. Mm. And you did your academic work in the morning and then dance, choreography and ballet in the afternoon. And that, with the musical background, gave me the basis of an appreciation of both dance and music. So it was quite a classical training, though, wasn't it? It was. um, How lucky was I? One Saturday... Uh, I was very friendly with another lad that was also on the same scholarship course. I used to go and listen to this marvellous cellist playing. She was there with her professor playing on a Saturday. It was Jacqueline Dupre. Oh, my word. So to have experiences like that. And then I was leader of the second orchestra at the Guildhall. Not good enough for the first, (laughs) but that buoyed me up. You know, it was something that I could do. Um, So that whole background of ballet, the arts, we were all brought up with a very artistic background. Mm. My sister, my eldest sister, was in the Royal Ballet Company. My second sister, with her scholarship on the piano, was also at Hornsey Art College and won the Poetry Prize for the South Bank Show. My father was the most awful, dictatorial, hard man out. Mm. So with my fourth sister, he said, I want an ordinary child. (laughs) And he wouldn't let her do any of that. She won a scholarship to the same school that I was at. And they said, she's so talented at ballet, you needn't pay her fees. He said, no. So my poor younger sister suffered where we were all incredibly creative as a family. And he didn't like that. He was in computing. 
My second sister said he used to go to church, kneel down and say, dear God, let me show you how to do it, which kind of summed him up. He was so dictatorial. And although I smile about it, uh, he also thrashed us. And that's something when you're a tiny child. Um, The feeling of powerlessness never left me, which is why later on when we go further down the line about what I ended up doing as a career... I don't call my 10 years on television a career. (laughs) It was cabaret time. Um, I think that's why, because I felt so misunderstood as a child and so cowered and beaten by him, that I was able to put that to good use later on in my life. Well, in a way, you were sort of forced into that world and he, he dominated you and would punish you if you didn't do it properly. Was that right? punish me for the smallest of things, the smallest of things. I think he got um, a strange thrill out of being totally in charge Mm. and and telling us what to do. I think he's a product, too, of World War II, um, which as a child one didn't understand what it must have done to him. He was brought up by two spinster aunts, his mother was in a mental home, and both his brothers were killed in the war, burnt alive. So when I look back and reflect on that, it doesn't excuse his behaviour, but as an adult, I have a better understanding. Mm. But I hope there's no way I, because of the way I was treated, I would treat others like that. No, it's strange, isn't it? Sometimes out of suffering, people become gentler. People can have the most awful childhood, and then, like you, say, well... What I'm going to be is is I'm going to be nice to people. I'm going to be kind. But in fact, others repeat that same behaviour, don't they? I mean, I suppose he would have had almost Victorian parents. Absolutely, because they were two spinsters. One was a head teacher of an infant school Mm. and the other was a cellist and she was a professor of music. So, again, a strange balance there, rather like our own family. Um, I think, really, without my mother being the way she was, she said we'd all be split up into homes. In those days, you didn't have um, the social services. So she made the decision that we should all stick together, but she was powerless to stop him doing it. Mm. I think I had, oh, a fairly bad time to overcome, In my life, decades of teaching children coming from very, very deprived homes, from chaotic backgrounds, the most challenging of children because of what they were suffering, I had an empathy as a teacher that I hope I never lost. Mm. So I said to my mother before she passed away a few years ago, actually, it sounds perverse, my father did me a favour because (laughs) I've been able to help and get the satisfaction of helping other young people overcome their problems. Yes, particularly if those problems are, in fact, related to an adult, because then you get that idea that you say, well, not all adults are going to do this to you in your life. Not all adults are going to treat you this way. Some of us value you. Yes, and I think that's a very good lesson for them, Mm. where I have, on various occasions to children that are really, really uh, behaving in the most extraordinary way. They've been excluded from school. I sometimes talked about myself. Um, There's one incident in the book where I think people identify with why I said to this child, that happened to me too. Yeah, I'm sure. It's interesting that you have a love for the music. You could, in fact, resent it. You could regard it as something that you were forced to do and it's a chore. But in the end, being able to play the violin well and where it led you as far as your education was concerned, that makes it something that you cherish. Oh, definitely. I mean, I am in wonderment when I listen to Tchaikovsky. How could you write something so beautiful as that? Mm -hmm. You know, I go into a lot of ballets with Tchaikovsky I have to say, I think it's rather like ABBA. People sort of think, oh, when it's commercially made famous because, oh, it's Tchaikovsky, it's ABBA, people kind of frown upon the fact that it's well-loved and it's commercial. No, when you actually listen to it, I think how can one man compose with all those instruments something so beautiful? He's coping with his own sexuality. He was Russian and coping with them saying this is westernised music. Mm. You know, they were still very much into Russian folk music at the time. And I think, wow, you know, you you get an appreciation, whether it's Mahler, whether it's Beethoven, um, and how fortunate I was to study music like that. Mm. 
Yes, absolutely. To have that knowledge. And then also, in a way, to see that go through into modern music. Because once you go into dance, once you move away from ballet, then you are basically dancing to a, what, to a different tune. Yes, I think um, where as soon as I hear a piece of music, I'm choreographing. Hmm. So I'm not listening to lyrics, which I actually had a downfall once at TVAM because Jackie Collins, uh, Joan Collins' sister, came off air and she said, Lizzie, I've just seen you actually doing that to a Rolling Stones music. Have you actually listened to the words? I said, no, no, <laughs> I've just got by the feeling of the music. So <laughs> it has its downfall, but I hear music and I see shape hmm. and then I start doing it and I sometimes think, Wow, you've got two arms, two legs. You can still do the extraordinarily different shapes and move with your body. And that's the most wonderful feeling. Mm. Well, let's put your violin in then as the first thing. And let's move on in time, I suppose, and and look at the second thing you're going to choose. The second thing would be a cassette. Mm -hmm. And on that cassette, on that tape, is a play. And it's a play that was written by a maths teacher who then became my husband for boys, some of them that couldn't read, some of them with the most difficult problems, some that had almost been expelled from school. And it's the drama club I ran. When in 1970, I decided to start teaching, I knew I wanted to teach really, really difficult kids. Mm. And I asked the Inner London Education Authority to give me the worst school they could give me in London, <laughs> which they found quite amusing. And they said, well, we've got the second worst school we can give you. It's a 1,500 boys comprehensive school on Clapham Common. And it's very much in the days of the Brixton riots and the unrest that was going yes, on. Yes, in a day when Clapham Common wouldn't have been the chic area to live that it is now. <laughs> no, no, no. It's become very fashionable now. In those days, it certainly wasn't. Um, and I went there to teach um, English and drama. And it was there that I started realising, hang on, we've got 15-year-olds that can't even read. Mm. How have they gone through primary school and they can't read? I find it astonishing that in our education system now, the kids, thousands, thousands of them can leave primary school unable to read. Mm. I decided with this maths teacher, we'll create a drama club. And it was very, very successful. Um, I started teaching the boys dance in the lunch hours and after school, which in the 70s is not something you do in a boys' school. No. And the talent was extraordinary. In the same way there was talent in my family, there was talent all over the place. But what they hadn't got was opportunity. Mm -hmm. My mother had made sure we all had opportunity, but not with the boys' background. Their fathers and mothers were in jobs that they didn't have time to teach them to read or they weren't interested. There were all sorts of different things going on. So in this drama club, my husband wrote plays and they were centred around the kids and they were pantomimes. And we had a great school theatre and for three nights, we'd fill the theatre out with all these kids coming to the school and their parents. Not, sadly, the parents, the boys that were in the plays. No. So what we did was we decided to show the parents and the people that did come what really went on in this school. And so we wrote a spoof on Doctor Who, where we had the master and the baddie and the master... The baddie was the head teacher who never at this school came out of his office. <laughs> and we had them acting on stage, rioting. We then had the saviour coming in, in Doctor Who, to try and change them, turn them into good pupils and so forth. But the head teacher never came to any of the plays that we did. Mm. And we were hauled in front of him and virtually ex expelled and told, sorry, you can't do this in school. Uh. And we thought we were going to get the sack. We didn't actually get the sack. Um, it's quite extraordinary, the story. That is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's weird the school was built at a time when they would have seen the importance of those things because they built you a decent theatre to perform in. And it was at a time where the government had decided that we had to have comprehensive schools. So we had the merging of grammar school and secondary school. So this was one of the first comprehensive schools. So the headmaster had come from a totally different background. So suddenly he was seeing kids probably yeah. never seen their behaviour. I mean, one of our one of my lads that I'm still in touch with in his sixties reminded me 
of how actually he was on duty as a prefect and he was told, go and look after these kids having their lunch, which he did. Told this boy, no, you can't walk out of, out of the room with your dinner. He got his cousin along with a chair leg, smashed Jeff over the head, who ended up with stitches in the hospital. We remember that actually that boy just got uh, sent home for the rest of the week and was back in school the following week. So there were extraordinary things going on in school. It was incredibly violent. There was racial tension. We had skinheads. But out of this came this extraordinary drama club. So we taped all the plays we did. So I got a cassette of this. Brilliant. And that will bring back the memories. And it will bring back the memories that when Pan's People, the dance group on top of the Pops, disbanded mm -hmm. and they wanted two boy dancers, that my lad said, here, miss, can we go along to the audition? <laughs> which was being held at the dance centre in Covent Garden. I said, boys, you don't understand. We've got stage schools and dance schools and theatre schools. Um, so expect hundreds of people, but just do what you can. Mm. I couldn't go because at that time I had my tiny baby. Right. Two of my boys got it. Oh. One boy was Floyd, who then went on to become, after Top of the Pops, very famous, uh, Arlene Phillips, when she started up Hot Gossip, he became one of her first dancers. And Jeff yeah. was the reserve. And Jeff went on to dance on TV. He then became a producer at BBC, then head of light entertainment at L London Weekend Television, and is now in LA as executive producer with Nigel Lithgow on the 17th series of So You Think You Can Dance. And then wow. Gary who was also in our drama club, uh, ended up virtually every West End musical and a director of shows in the West End Theatre. Mm -hmm. And Patrick became the first black dancer in the English National Ballet. So those four had a terrific career just coming from this little drama club in Henry Thornton Boys Comprehensive School. Nothing to do with you, Lizzie. Nothing to do with you, I'm sure. It's the opportunity I was able to give them that I, from my training and my chances, I was able to give them and the maths teacher to be able to write such brilliant plays. Mm -hmm. It was the coming together of all of us. And the joy is we still meet up. Lovely to do that with your husband. Yes, it was. Although I have to say, Mike, we're now divorced, but <laughs> we're still very good friends. So when I was writing my memoir, he was able to remind me of certain things that happened in the school. Yes, but it's also that acceptance that you're not doing it in a dictatorial way. Clearly, you've brought these children in and said, right, what should we do? What do you want to do? So when they say to you, can we go and audition for that, miss? You go, well, it's not going to be easy, but yeah, go for it. You know, that sort of thing with a child, giving a child that sort of encouragement and uh, saying to them, well, your opinion is important and what you think is important. It makes an enormous difference to a child, I think. It's all about approach. The confidence that I didn't have as a child because of what happened to me, mm. I made sure I gave them, yes, you can do it. Yeah. And it's the, it's the approach. And I think one of my greatest achievements of my time at that school, the several years, is one of the lads, again, couldn't read, could not read, mm. but at 14, there he was, stuck in the remedial group at the school. He joined the drama club and he couldn't read, so we were all helping him. Well, he was such a good little actor that I thought, well, I was in the National Youth Theatre, why not try with him and actually two others? But this boy could not read at all. So... <laughs> I gave him two speeches, as you know, you have to do two speeches. Yeah. And because he was black and he'd experienced a lot of racial problems, I mm -hmm. thought, right, Shylock, Merchant of Venice. And then Peter Turson, the Zaga play, gave him a speech. Well, training him was fantastic because he got his words, his Shakespeare model up. He got in. Uh. But that, to me, is the greatest achievement because he couldn't read. He learned how to read through it but also the natural talent he had could be rewarded. Mm, absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, in a way, it sounds as if you became a great loss to the teaching profession when you moved on. I left that school to run the teaching unit at a home for disturbed adolescents. Now, can you imagine a title like that nowadays? No. A home for disturbed adolescents. <laughs> but I went back to the school, to the Evening Institute, to carry on teaching these lads and run the drama club as an evening institute. Yes. So after TVAM, I've done 
a lot more teaching, a lot more with excluded kids in prison and so forth. That was the basis of my teaching career. Yes, and in a way that's what Joggy Bear does, isn't it? That's right. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we should put that little cassette of the recordings of the... I'd love to hear it. That sounds fantastic. So uh, we should put that into the time capsule. That's your second item, Lizzie. So um, what's number three? Okay, we're going to take a short ad break now. We'll be back with the rest of Lizzie's choices in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back to Lizzie Webb's Time Capsule. Let's find out what else she'd like to have in it, shall we? See you at the end. Number three is a Christmas card from George Harrison (laughs) and framed by my wonderful son is this Christmas card he sent me with a lovely, lovely long message alongside my photographs with him. Um, I had the opportunity on TVAM to choose my guests, to choose my music, to choose what I wear, to produce my own slot. Greg Dyke said, I know nothing about what you do in the fitness world. Go ahead and do it yourself. That was the most extraordinary opportunity to be told you can do whatever you like. Just go and do it. We need the ratings to get up. You probably remember the whole background story of the famous five, how it had failed. Um, And I got my job because I was teaching at the dance centre because of what had happened to the boys, that they'd gone into the dance world. Mm -hmm. And so I was teaching my own funky dance at the dance centre in Covent Garden. And one day this girl came up to me and she said, oh, she said, I'm Jane Tatnell. You you know me by my face, but we've never had a chance to talk. I'm Greg Dyke's PA. And because The Green Goddess has started on breakfast television two months ago and it's been very popular, he wants someone that's very different to her. Mm. And because I used to be a dancer, she said, I've said to him, I go to this mad girl at the dance centre. She makes it such fun. (laughs) Everyone else in their classes elsewhere is serious, but we dance our socks off. And she's mad. And he said, mad, is she? What's her name? Lizzie. Mad Lizzie. Ask her to come and see me. So (laughs) Greg titled me that before he'd even met me. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So... With Jane's help for the first year until she left, we started off working together. And then after she left for nine years, I had to work out how can I make these two slots, because I was on twice a morning mm-hmm. live, how can I make these slots interesting? For people that aren't interested in fitness, and the whole concept for me was just to remind people to, in my four minutes that I had, which wasn't long, to just in the day put some form of exercise, whether it's walking up the stairs, whatever, put some music on, dance, whatever. So I had the ideas of doing lots of themes. I just didn't go on and kick my legs to any old piece of music. But I was in a position, because I'm a choreographer, that I could follow the shape of the music or I'd have pop people in and and create dances for them. Mm. And I knew 
very quickly that if I use that same record, that piece of music to either exercise to or to dance to, if I used it three or four times over a period of two weeks, I could get that record in the charts. <laughs> and that's what happened. It's what happened, dare I say it to you, Agadu. Because I know your background yes. as well. <laughs> it's a strange world, isn't it? Now, I'm sure there are other connections as well, Lizzie. I can't tell you the number of times I went to the dance studio to audition for musicals usually, because they always wanted to see if you could move. Yes. Unfortunately, I can move, but usually when they say, thank you very much, goodbye, <laughs> that's when I have to move. But I've spent a lot of time in the dance studio. And also, I would go and do voiceovers and work in that area. So I would often walk past that great big large window with everybody doing classes inside. Studio 2, when the dance centre in Covent Garden closed... Mm. Debbie Moore had been a pupil there, you know, just going to dance classes. And she, with her accountant husband, started off Pineapple. Ah. And you're talking about Studio Two, where I would take my classes on a Saturday and a Tuesday evening. And people would peer in through the windows, yes. didn't they? Yeah, you would. You would look in and go, oh, my word, they look good. So what happened was, with my music at TVAM... I had record companies sending me loads of music because they wanted me to use it because it was a great vehicle for them and their artists. So I had someone come with the name of Simon Cowell who was looking after someone called Sunita. <laughs> now, Simon quickly used me, realising, hang on, this is a great outlet. He learned the power and the visuals of television with the music, which, of course, he's later gone on and done. So I worked with Simon quite closely for about five years. Mm. So I got to know Simon very well when no one else knew Simon as the Simon that he has become. Yes. One day I had a record from um, a solo artist by the name of George Harrison. <laughs> and he was the Beatle I always fancied. So I thought, I've got to use it no matter what it's like. Played it and it was great. Up-tempo, I've got my mind set on you. Mm. But nobody was playing it, which to me was extremely Extraordinary. Mm. I mean, how can you not play one of George Harrison's singles? <laughs> so I did it. And I did it quite a few times. And lo and behold, it got in the charts. And as you know, once a record gets in the top 100 in those days, then it's picked up by the radio stations and it gets all the airplay. Mm. So I got it into the charts. One day I went home and there was this voice on my recording machine. Hello, this is George Harrison. I want to thank you for making my record a hit. I thought, this is Rory Bremner. This can't be George Harrison. <laughs> Do you know, he'd found out my phone number and phoned me to thank me. What a lovely thing to do. I called him back and that was his answer machine. And I never expected to hear from him again, which I didn't. Then one day at TVAM, I got this amazing Christmas card and it's from George. Dear Lizzie, and you apologised for being out of the country, because by then it was number one in America. Mm -hmm. Apologise for being out of the country. My next record's going to be When We Were Fab. He said, you'll have to make it When We Were Flab. <laughs> um, we must meet for that lunch. Wow. He invited me to his house, if you can call it a house. It was this stunning place in Henley on Thames. Yes, going down to the river. It had been some sort of convent. I don't know, it was this huge Gothic mansion. And I went with my partner who's now my husband and we sat in his kitchen and I'll never forget it in the kitchen was this little black and white picture of him as a little boy sitting on the doorstep of his house that he was brought up in and he said the words I never forget mm. and I thought that was just incredible mm. so framed uh, the pictures of him hugging me, playing his, one of his guitars with my leg up. Oh, my um, God. Wow. And then this Christmas card. Now, who would ever have thought that, that, you know, a man of that, the world's biggest pop group would go out of his way to acknowledge that you had a hand in making his record a hit? Mm, wonderful. Don't you find, Mike, that the people that have really made it in their profession are the kindest and the nicest and the best people. Yes, and I think that may be why they made it. They retain a kindness and a thoughtfulness for others. And as you say, remember where they came from. I remember how it started. That's me on the doorstep as a boy. And I'll never forget that, despite the fact I now live in a great Gothic mansion. I went with a group of kids 
that had asked me, I didn't know them, and I'd only been on TV in a couple of years, but they'd obviously been exercising and enjoyed what I did. And they were going over with a record they'd made on Peace to see Yoko Ono. She'd invited them over. Mm. So they said, would I go with them? <laughs> so I had the extraordinary experience of having tea with Yoko Ono in her apartment in New York at the Dakota <laughs> building. Things like that. You just pinch yourself and think, wow, you know, these things really happened. Yes. The strangest thing is when those people turn up and they know who you are. They go, oh, hello, Lizzie. And they've seen you. They know what you do. And you go, oh, I can't believe you've watched me. Anthony Hopkins came up to me when I was walking through the um, festival at TVAM. And he suddenly went, Lizzie, how <laughs> lovely to meet you. Wow. I thought, my, my jaw fell open. This yeah. is Anthony Hopkins, you know. <laughs> um, again, goes back to what we're saying about lovely people at, um, at the top. What an honour you want to say to meet you, you know. It's just just wonderful that... Uh, and what a privilege to be in such a lovely, easygoing profession like that. It was mm. it's, For me, an extraordinary 10 years that I had never expected, never wanted to do after teaching the boys and everything else that happened. Dougie Squires, who you might remember as a choreographer. I do, yes. The, the two of the lads got into his second generation. He said, I've never seen you boys before. Who's taught you? They said, well, our school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, who's your school teacher? And he said, well, she's called Miss Beveridge. Well, he said she should be teaching in stage schools. And that's why I ended up teaching at Italia Conti Stage School, Sylvia Young's. London Studio Centre and so forth. So I also had that experience before I did TVAM as well. Extraordinary. It's wonderful that despite that period where you're meeting George Harrison and you're meeting Anthony Hopkins and, and you're on the television every day and everybody knows who you are, clearly the thing that you really treasure is that experience of teaching children. I think to be able to have an impact and offer opportunities to the next generation to pass on the skills that you have which is what I love about my boys who are now in their 60s and the roles they are, like Jeff in L.A. He really cares. He travels the world auditioning for So You Think You Can Dance. Mm -hmm. And he really cares about his pupils, as does Gary when he's been directing and auditioning. And I know that what they had when they were at Henry Thornton Boys School uh, within our drama club and caring, they've carried through out their careers. Mm. So passing on those skills that you have, which is what I did after TVAM with ex-offenders and pupils in a referral unit, if you can motivate and pass on those skills and pass on the good things in life that they can aspire to, that they can be motivated to want to do instead of being on the streets, which is what so many teachers are, are trying to do and are successfully doing. But they have such a difficult job in doing it nowadays that that is a privilege. Yes. I'd like to think they really are the minority that don't care. Oh, absolutely. They're, without doubt they are. They're a tiny minority, really. The, the idea that you'd be in a profession amongst a bunch of children, working with children, when you didn't like children is weird. You don't go into that profession for the money either. So, you know, you've got to really want to be making a change in someone's life. Mm. But we will put George Harrison's picture and that Christmas card into the time capsule. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm very jealous. Let's move on to the next thing. What's number four? Well, it's so hard to choose because I, I have the most wonderful albums of pictures of my life. It's just memories that you want to keep. But I think probably my fourth one has got to be this six-foot costume of Joggy Bear. Right. Now, Joggy Bear's a children's character. Again, an opportunity. If I hadn't done TVAM, I would never have created Joggy Bear. Once I realised so many children were copying me in the mornings, doing my exercises, because their parents and their grannies and their aunts would send me photographs. You'd see me on screen, and then the kids copying exactly. I thought they should have a character that motivates them how to exercise and mm. keep it going. So it wasn't just for a few minutes. So I created this character, Joggy Bear, and did an exercise video for them called Joggy Bear, which was very successful. Mm. But... 
This is because I'm on television every day. It's about exposure. Had I not been on television, no one would have known. But because I was there and it was so regular, it was like I'd become a family member. So I think really, although I'm proud of the product, that also obviously helps. Yes. And after TVAM, I resurrected him because I could see he could be a tool of learning. It wasn't just about fitness. Mm. Um, so after TVAM, I ran my own exercise classes, but I thought, what do I really want to do in my life? I thought I really want to go back to how my teaching career started in 1970. So I ended up creating a charity called Creativity and Sport. And my co-director was someone I taught because I taught the Great Britain Rowing Squad for two years, the, the women, they're called Stability, because you might remember me on screen on television doing simple exercises, because that's all I could do. <laughs> but actually, I'm a very, very fit person with my strength exercises and so forth. I bet. And that's what I did for two years. And I met Debbie, who wanted to work with very, very disadvantaged children. And I said, well, I'd done that before. We linked up and taught uh, to boys' juvenile prisoners, volunteers. And mm. I was in this massive sports hall. So I taught boys on the long stay wing, exercise and dance. I got them dancing. And it was a great outlet for them. I was like their prison mum. We'd just often sit and talk <laughs> about their lives. And I think I learned a lot from that that I could put into creativity and sport as well, which was using my own behaviour management programmes within exercise. And Debbie and I managed to get our own teaching qualification for that. And then to train all these kids that were excluded from school, from pupil referral units that came on the courses that I ran for them. And because I'm so fit... They would come in, uh, I'd challenge them with exercises, and here's this old girl. They couldn't beat me. They couldn't beat me in squats. They couldn't beat me on certain exercises. But also at the same time, incredibly tragic that they'd been born into this home or an environment where they could not prosper. They could not um, achieve. They had, I mean, absolutely chaotic lives. Mm. So how we expect them to go to school and sit at a desk and learn? No. If you start thinking like that, you then start thinking, how can I teach them? What is going to really help them to learn to read at the age of 15? Or the courses I was running for Job Centre Plus, where they were coming to me to get the confidence through movement and learn how to read. You start having a very, very different attitude towards life where you see the haves and the have-nots mm. and how with the have-nots can I create a better future for them yes. and that for me is when I die or when I'm looking at the time capsule <laughs> of my things in there that's what I would like to remember the privilege of working with all these people from different backgrounds and creating opportunities and knowing that they have prospered and had a better life because you've been able to create those opportunities. Yes, that really is something to be proud of. And we underestimate the value of great teachers, I think, <laughs> the very fact that they've had to go on strike. And in a way, they've had to accept not that great a pay offer because they just want to get back to it. They want to do what they love, I think. And they also care about the education system, the fact that there aren't enough teachers Teachers on the whole now, I mean, it's extraordinary the number of teachers leaving the profession after they've been trained. They survive three years and then leave. We have to look at the education system and say, how can we better it? Now, in the last chapter of the book, I plead for the case for the arts mm. and sport and dance. Yeah. That's what we should be doing in schools. And in the second chapter of my book, I do a lot of the socio-drama of how kids learned about their behaviour through the drama I was doing with them. It has such a place in our schools. And my other plea is, and something that I learnt running this charity, Creativity in Sport, it's too late 
to be teaching the kids that are in pupil referral units at the age of 15 and 16. It's too late to be teaching them when they're in prison. We have to start at the beginning of a child's education. Yeah. Otherwise, you're constantly, like I was, playing catch-up and training them how to behave, how to re-socialise them, how to teach them the basics of literacy and numeracy, because as so many of them said, I wasn't going to be shown up in front of my mates that I can't read, so I just made sure I made the teacher's life help. So mm. if we start off at the very beginning and kids come with different problems in their first year of school, some haven't been potty trained, some, it's, which is extraordinary, but mm. that's what happens. Some have had parents that have taught them to read. Others, like this boy, who I then later taught to get into the National Youth Theatre, he said, my parents spent their time fighting. We didn't have books in the house. So you start off with kids in that first year of school, all with different abilities, different backgrounds. And that's where I started doing Joggy Bear. Because Joggy Bear teaching them to read, teaching them to socialise, teaching them how to count hmm. and so forth, it was all done with learning on the move. And that's how I think and that's what I'm working on at the moment and doing it in colleges. I just I thought I'd retire when I moved here, but I <laughs> that's what I really, really want to do. If we can change the mindset of how in the education system we start at the beginning get it right at the beginning, we won't have over 200,000 pupils leaving primary school not able to read. No, and we won't have people saying we need 200,000 more policemen, but all those things. that If, in fact, you've been made to feel that you're part of society, you don't want to do. It's all tied up. The, this, mm. the social deprivation goes hand in hand often with the fact that they, they can't read and write and they haven't got a home stability life that's going to encourage them to want to, to really achieve and achieve the right way. And I think the respect that they then get for you that you care and show an interest is what we need to do. So I'm sorry to sound so passionate about no, it. No, no. Now, it's great to be passionate, and you're absolutely right to be passionate. In a way, it's, Lizzie, it's almost like they've got a disability, but it's a hidden disability, and it's one that a lot of adults suffer from, and we ignore it. I think I'm so passionate because I'm in a very, very rare position where probably if I hadn't done 10 years of television, I wouldn't have been given the opportunity uh, to devise programmes that no one's devised before. I've been very, very lucky. But I'm also very different in that education hasn't been a career. What's the next step? Teacher, head of year, deputy head and so forth. Mm. So what's happened is I've taught nursery school, I've taught primary school, secondary school, prison, pupil mm. referral units, ex-offenders. So I've gone right through the chain of the education system where there can be very few people that have had that opportunity to yeah. do that. So I've experienced actually what's wrong with the education system, what's right with the education system. And at the end of the day, can see actually how we can actually improve society if we get it right at the beginning. That's why I'm so mm. passionate. Yes. And that's why we're going to put Joggy Bear into the time capsule to remind you of that passion. It's wonderful to hear. Uh, now, with the passion and the enthusiasm you have, which is it just beams out of you, Lizzie, and always has, and I'm sure that's why people loved you and why people followed you on television and why you work so well on telly is that you just have this enthusiasm for life that I can't believe that you're going to have something that you want to put into the time capsule that you're going to bury and forget. Well, I guess it has to be the bad things that happened to me as a child, but at the same time, it's a bit of a dichotomy because of what it gave me me. I would not have done what I'd done if I hadn't had those bad experiences as a child. But I would rather forget them. Yes. So I put them in the time capsule and say, go away. I don't want to remember those bad things. No, because you don't have to remember them to be motivated now. Uh, and in fact, you'd never know whether you would have been the same person, whether in fact you would have done the same things if you hadn't suffered that unhappiness as a child. I'm not sure that even if it produces something great in you, I'm not sure that it's ever worth a child suffering that sort of abuse, really. So I'm very happy to put that into the time capsule for you and you can forget it. 
it's gone. <laughs> so thank you so much for doing this for me. And I look forward to seeing all the things you're going to do. Well, I would imagine forever, because I can't ever imagine you not being with us. It's lovely to have you on my time capsule. Thank you, Lizzie. And I think too, Mike, if um, the enthusiasm one has for being able to move and enjoy that, and if you can encourage others to get that enjoyment, you've got one body that's it's worth taking care of. That's it. I'm off swimming with my grandchild now. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Lizzie Webb. See, I told you she wasn't mad. Fabulous? Yes. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, then we have lots more for you to explore. Over 300 guests and some special episodes. So do subscribe and we'll let you know as soon as a new one is ready. It would really help us if you take a second to rate the show. The more ratings we get, the higher our profile. And that's what helps to persuade new listeners to have a go at the podcast. And talking about having a go at the podcast, if you're really keen, then we'd be thrilled if you'd write a short review. If that's an option on the podcast player you use, do follow me and my time capsule on Twitter slash X and Instagram, and sometimes on Facebook, although that's mostly my time capsule, as I'm useless at Facebook. Actually, I'm pretty useless at most social media, but that may prove all the more amusing if you actually know what you're doing. The theme tune was written by Pass the Peas Music and can be heard anytime on Spotify. Plus, you can, for a small fee, get this podcast without ads and get a bonus episode with bonus material, etc. if you become an Acast Plus member. Details in the description of all recent episodes. This cast-off production was silkily produced by my talented son, John Fenton-Stevens, for Acast. We'll be back soon, I hope, all being right with the world. And like Lizzie says, don't forget to do a little bit of exercise every day. Personally, I play golf. Well, I've just started. I'm good, though. In my first round, I hit two birdies, an eagle, three cows and a policeman. Yeah, that kept me fit. He chased me for bloody miles. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.